Welcome, everyone. Bienvenidos. I'm Danny Torres, host of the Talking 21 podcast and part of our Esquina Podcast Network. As 2021 comes to an official end, our next guest was affectionately known as ED, Eric the Red, and even Boogie is a native of South Central Los Angeles whose favorite sport was surprisingly, ready for this, basketball. But eventually, Eric Davis would choose baseball, and the Cincinnati Reds selected him in the eighth round of the 1980 MLB draft. And his major league debut occurred on May 19th, 1984, at the age of 21. This 1990 World Series champion who actually drove in five runs and blasted a homer in that fall classic was a recipient of three straight Gold Glove Awards, 1987 through 1989, a pair of Civil Slug Awards, and two All-Star Game appearances. Despite injuries that included a lacerated kidney while diving for a ball in Game 4 of that World Series, diagnosed with colon cancer in 1997, one could possibly make the comparison. Eric Davis, who played 17 seasons in the big leagues, was like the Energizer Bunny commercial that promoted the battery life of their product. He kept going and going and going. But today, Eric, who was inducted into the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame in 2005, was quick to point out he is not a coach, but a teacher, and still involved in the game of baseball within the Reds minor leagues. So before class begins, Let's sit up straight, be attentive, grab a pen and paper, and listen to my conversation with Eric the Red Davis, who in 1997 won MLB's version of a Pulitzer Prize, the Roberto Clemente Award. Well, welcome, Eric Davis, to the Talking 21 podcast. And I know, Eric, you got a few nicknames. They call you Eric the Red. They call you ED. But most importantly for our listeners, you also were the recipient of the Roberto Clemente Award, a prestigious honor that was bestowed on you in 1997. But before we talk about that, my man, how you been doing lately? How's things in Arizona? Man, everything is beautiful, man. It's just a little chilly tonight, though, but it's still cool. But you know... The Eric the Red came from Chris Berman. The ED came from some of my other compadres. You know what I'm saying? Oh, and, tu hablas español muy bien. Tu hablas español muy bien. Sí, poquito. Sí, sí, sí. <laughs> but 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 the, the real one amongst my teammates is Boogie. And, Boogie. And all the ones who really call me Boogie, they really know that we done got down. And, so uh, really I can tell you right together. now, you, you would definitely assimilate in the South Bronx because the nickname for the South Bronx is you are from the Boogie Down Bronx. Boogie Down Bronx. I remember that. Boogie, Boogie Down, Down Bronx. Bronx. Boogie Down Bronx. So ED, you know, I grew up in the South Bronx and you grew up in South Central. For a lot of right. listeners, how can you describe the South Central of your childhood? Uh, it would be considered the South Bronx without the high rises. Uh, okay. It was more of the of, of a survival mode. Uh, we had to walk to school. We was blessed that we didn't have snow, but we had to walk. Uh, uh, I walked to school everywhere I went. And, and through the gang affiliations, you didn't have the boroughs to separate it. It was blocks that separated and things of that nature. So okay. uh, if you turned down the wrong block, you had a confrontation. If someone saw you had a leather jacket, you had a confrontation. So 
uh, got, I learned at a younger age that I feared my parents more than I feared, feared a dude in the street. So you weren't going to get my jacket or none of that. We were just going to have to fight every day we went to school. So once they figured out that you was going to fight, then it kind of subsided itself. But it was no different outside of the high rises and the boroughs. Growing up in the hood in South Central, there were three sports, basketball, baseball, and football. Eric mentioned he wouldn't necessarily credit a particular person for introducing him to baseball, but when he eventually made it to the big leagues, there was already comparisons to the Say Hey Kid, Willie Mays. And Eric Davis, damn, this brother could play. Shot into right center field with speed. He'd get that triple, let's see if he can do it. Will he try it? He's gonna go for it, he's going for the cycle. And he slides and he is safe. Eric Davis, how many times do you see that? Hit for the cycle as Larkin scores, it's nine to four. But that's something you see so rarely. Now I know you love basketball, but who introduced you to the game of baseball? Well, it was a guy by the name of Dennis Mims um, at one of our local parks right up the street from where I grew up at. And he had a, um, a semi-pro football team. I don't even know if you remember back in the neighborhoods and stuff, they had semi-pro football teams sure. that played tackle football at the parks. And, and so he had that, and then he started a, a, a youth team from there with baseball. And it was up in Manchester Park. And I think I had to be about seven or eight, and I was playing overhand. It wasn't no t-ball and stuff like that if you want to play you have to play and, and so i started playing with older guys and one thing led to another but in the city you play a sport that was in season and and it was basketball football and baseball we didn't have hockey soccer wasn't cool in the hood so you didn't have none of that um but it was basketball baseball and football and and when the football season was in, we picked up the football. When basketball season was in, we switched it to the ground ball. And uh, when baseball season was in, we did all that. So no one really introduced me to it, per se. Um, as a kid, I, I kind of introduced myself. Uh, I was a Dodger fan, and you know uh, how we feel about Vin Scully, uh, one of the greatest, if not the greatest announcer of of, of not just baseball, but sports in general, uh, you didn't have cable and things like that. So we listened to the games and stuff like that. So I definitely it, remember it really that. played yeah. it out in, in, the, in the storytelling side. So, and the, and, the, and the Dodgers and the Reds were always like, you had the Eastern Division back then and the Western Division. So probably in the seventies, outside of maybe one year that the Dodgers went to the World Series or the Reds went to the World Series. So they were so tight. And everybody wanted to flap like Joe and, and, and you wanted to dive first, like head first, like Pete Rose and you wanted to bask and catch like Willie Mays and stuff. So we played a lot of over the line and different things of that nature. So that's what really got me into the game and learning the game was just listening to it and going out there trying to emulate the, all the great players that was in the sixties and seventies. So ED, you know, knowing your love for basketball, how would you say how important was playing basketball to your repertoire to transition to baseball? It was huge. Um, it, it, uh, it was the first team sport I ever played. Um, and it taught me discipline. It taught me unselfishness. It taught me um, 
compassion for my teammates who taught me how to play the game fairly, how to play aggressive, how to, how to respect the players that you played against. Uh, but from a physical standpoint, uh, each sport that I played as a youth gave me something that the other sports didn't offer. Uh, speed and agility was because of basketball and the drills that I did for basketball. Uh, any particular drills? I, any particular drills, Ed? Like you could uh, say dribbling drills and defensive okay. slide drills. If you look at all the particulars about how you really play basketball, not in this era because they don't really play basketball in this era. They play like and one basketball in this era. That's but right. when you really talk about the nuts and bolts of playing defense, how you get in your position, how your legs and you shuttle your feet and you move and you turn and you have balance and all those types of things. So when I started to steal bases, my explosiveness was because of how explosive I was on the basketball court with my first step. You know, if you play basketball and you got a first step, you quick as hell, you getting around people, you moving. It also helped in football because I was a cornerback and I was a wide receiver. So I was able to run routes precise because I was able to steal bases precise. You know what I'm saying? So sure. uh, just the toughness and the grit from playing football to enable me not to have the fearfulness of of running in the walls and things like that. But if I'd have been smart, I wouldn't have ran into them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So just every sport gave me something uh, uh, that the other sports didn't have. You know, you were selected by the Reds, E.D., in, 19, in the 1980 uh, Major League Baseball draft. But what was the reaction from your parents, the high school teachers and coaches that you eventually headed to the big leagues? What was the reaction, especially from your parents? Well, it was uh, it was shocking uh, because we didn't know. Um, the scouts would come by and they would just frivolously talk about certain things and stuff. But my high school um, has the had I think Tampa tied us. We had the most out from from my high school to make it to the major leagues in the country, which was nineteen of them. Wow! So my wow. school was was a baseball school. But I didn't know that going to it and stuff, you know, sure. all the way, everybody from Willie Crawford to Bobby Tolan to Bobby Watson to uh, Dan Ford, Chet Lemon, uh, George Hendricks. It's, it's a lot of them that came from there. Um, so just knowing the history, I knew something was happening. Uh, but to what degree? No. Um, actually, my mom was was more excited than my dad because my dad never seen me play baseball until I got to Dodger Stadium. Really? Uh, really? Now, why is that the case? Why is that the case? Because he worked two jobs to make sure my mom and us had what we needed, not what we wanted, but what we needed. Wow. Uh, so he saw me play one high school basketball game and he saw me play my first baseball game when I got to uh, Dodger Stadium. But I got beat up by my dad and stuff. I could not run my daddy until I was 17 years old. Wow. So he used to take us down to the program and beat my brother and my cousins up and we go home crying and my mama would get mad at him and stuff like that. So I learned to be tough from playing against my dad and older guys and stuff like that. So he saw the skills that I had at a young age, but he never saw it in a competitive industry. Okay. And, and so when he was like, these guys want to do what they want to do that. They want to do this. Is this kid really like this? Cause he really didn't know. Um, but once they came to the house and the letters started coming from basketball, that's when he really started to get an idea that I was pretty good. 
You know, you made your Major League Baseball debut at the age of 21. Isn't that amazing? You think about it, Clemente's number, that's the, when you made your Major League debut. I knew but, we had something in common. Oh, man, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, what you did, uh, ED, on the Major League level, I mean, come on, let's see. I, I looked it all up. I did my homework during the mid-1980s through the 90s. was truly unbelievable. I mean, let's, let's go down the line. Two-time All-Star. Silver Slugger Award, the 2080 Club. And for those listening, 20 home runs, 80 stolen bases, three-time gold glove, and of course, a World Series championship. But throughout those early years, you had some Hall of Famers, future Hall of Famers, extraordinary players, Tony Perez, Barry Larkin, and other players uh, such as Dave Parker, Dave Concepcion, who I have said in my generation, I grew up as a Met fan, but I have to say, you see, the greatest shortstop for me was Dave Concepcion. Willie Wilson. I mean, we know how Willie was on the baselines. And of course, your managers, Pete Rose and my man, Lou Pinella, who I got a funny story to tell you about Lou Pinella, and I'm sure we got <laughs> uh, that in common, but right. who helped you tremendously. What for you, ED, is the common denominator with all those players that I mentioned to you, those managers, what's the common denominator of those players, of what they instilled in ED? If I had to choose one, and that's a difficult question to ask because they had so many denominators because the beauty of baseball is, is that you can be any size, shape, form, uh, uh, height. You don't have to be a certain way. And, and if you think about all of the guys that you mentioned, they were all different in some capacity. But I, I think the 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 most important thing that I could say that was the common denominator was the ability to love to compete. And, and that's something that people don't really understand what that means. And, and if you ask kids today, like, what would you do to make it in the major leagues? And they'll say, I'll just about do anything. But you ask them, give you an example. Uh, they'll say, I sweep my mother's house or something like that. You know what I'm saying? It's not the really the grit and the grind of, 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 being competitive about how you're going to go about your business and, and knowing what it took from a, from a distance, but not knowing until I got involved in it and being a black man, it was difficult. It, it was really difficult. Although Davis family moved to California, his father was originally from Mississippi, a state that battled to maintain racial segregation. But similarly to when Clemente played in Florida during the 1950s and 1960s, driving down South was an experience in itself for a black man. Eric shared his thoughts on traveling throughout rural towns and the minor leagues, intimate conversations with his father as they drove from California to Mississippi and the do's and don'ts of a young black man from the West Coast and hearing about a 14 year old named Emmett Till for the very first time. Cincinnati is right on the border of Kentucky. So it was a lot of racist things that was going on. And then you look at the minor leagues, but back then it was like the Negro leagues because they was all in like little white rural towns and things of that nature. Uh, I played in Waterbury, Connecticut. I played in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I mean, I played in Warsaw. It was some places where it ain't no way in hell you would have drove to the places if you said, I got people over there. Some of my folks is in Warsaw, Wisconsin. They're not going there. So 
it was so many things of being called a nigga and a lot of different things growing up. And it's like, aren't we supposed to be past this? And you're talking about the eighties. So knowing that it really wasn't quite the way you thought it was. And, and then having coaches that you really knew and could, 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 could say deep in your heart that they didn't want you to make it, uh, that 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 whatever you did was worse than what everybody else did and what you did was not bad. so it was just so much going on but to watch the camaraderie with the black players before me that had transcended into my era was just a determination of of their past and their grandfather's past and their passes and slavery and making it because a lot of them guys came from alabama where my dad was from mississippi i was the only one born in los angeles you know what i'm saying so it was a lot of different things that was going on in my mind, uh, uh, having to go through these things in the 60s and the 70s, and then seeing black men at the pinnacle of a sport that I can feel and touch, and all of them had this burning desire to compete and succeed. How could you not gravitate to that? Now, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned Mississippi, and I'm saying to myself immediately, E.D., Imagine if you weren't born in South Central Los Angeles and you were born in Mississippi. Is that an opportunity to become a professional baseball player? I mean, even a reality, considering we're talking the state of Mississippi, even during that, that time period. Um, uh, uh, I know um, certain guys that was from Ned, Barry Larkin parents are from Mississippi. Okay. Uh, uh, I know... Uh, uh, up in Boston, uh, at the drawing a blank, the all can boys from Jackson, Mississippi. So it's a, it's a lot of guys who still got opportunities. Yeah. Uh, but I can't speak on what they went through to receive those opportunities. I can't speak yeah. on the fields that they played on. I can't speak on if they was able to travel and play. No. Uh, California, I was able to do that. Uh, so it afforded me a, a opportunity to be free. Because mm -hmm. uh, it's a funny story, because when I was just in Cali, we used to drive back to Mississippi every summer. Really? And, wow. And, and, and every time that we would get back to Mississippi, my father would tell me and my older brother and my cousins, because we used to caravan as men, uh, the young boys, he would like, listen, you can't whistle at white women. You can't do this at white women. You can't do this and nothing. Because if something happened to you, it's nothing I can do. Wow. That's when I first learned about Emmett Till. When I think I might have been like 10 years old, the first time I went back to Mississippi. And he told me about Emmett Till. And, wow. and that he gets killed for quote unquote whistling at a white woman. Sure, sure, sure. He hung up from the tree. So that was embedded in me as a young kid coming from California where the sixties, like they were smoking weed and, and the fucking rolling stones and, and, and you could have a white woman and stuff and you on, on the beach and, and you in flip flops and you got rainbow yeah. and stuff. So, you know, I'm seeing this. And then when I go here, I'm seeing this. So it, it was a culture shock for me. Every time I went back to Mississippi, then I would come back to California. But when I got drafted, I still had the Mississippi mindset on where I was going because I wasn't going to California. Mm. So I had to be careful and all of that kind of stuff resonated with me. So I know it's going to be tough. 
Well, you but know, seeing those we, brothers we, go through what they, the dude that was paving the way, infused the fire in me that they had. You know what you just shared, uh, Ed, is is rather deep, and that's that might be even for another podcast. But you know, Ed, the one thing that James Mims and I, and our, I think this is our fifth year, our relationship. That's my brother, like he is to right. you. But he knows Danny Torres loves to laugh, and right. I know Ed <laughs> like to laugh. So if you had to, for our listeners, and I got my Lupinella story for you. Okay. What was the funniest story? that occurred during your career, the whether it was with Lou Pinella, Pete Rose, Barry, Dave, but what is something that you could share for our listeners that to this day, 2021, it literally would still crack you up whether you were just by yourself or you're explaining okay. it to people like on this podcast? Well, I'm gonna I'm start with Lou Pinella. And, and um, we went wire to wire that year. So everybody know we went wire to wire, so. We would. Um, We're talking 1990 now, right? 1990 yes. the World Series. Okay. In 1990, we went wire to wire. So we was up like like about 12 games at this time, and the Dodgers had came in and they kind of shrunk it down to maybe like six or seven. So every Sunday, Bernie Stowe would have like turkey and dressing and cranberry sauce and mashed potatoes and stuff like that. So. <laughs> We lose the game, right? So Billy Hatcher was one of those guys who always came up real early, got in the food room to try to get in and get out. So Lou beat, Billy Hatcher beat Lou upstairs and was in there getting his food. And, and Lou came in and kicked the door on it. Like you son of a such and such and such as you MFs don't deserve to eat. So he kicked the spread over oh. while Billy Hatcher got a plate. And a, and, a, and a turkey drumstick landed in his plate. Out of all dressing, was all over the floor. Food was everywhere. And so he was the only one that got a chance to eat, and it was because of the field goal kicking of Lou Pinella. Lou Pinella used to get in the shower with his full uniform on. Really? I mean, what are you, superstitious? What is up with Lou? <laughs> no, that when we lost, he was just like that. He really wore it on his sleeve. And and <laughs> and just his mannerisms. And he loved vodka. He'd tell you he loved vodka. And you could tell when he was on one. And Doug, he would come in there, man, and we'd be like, oh, shit, we better win today because Skip, Skipper had no vodka in a while. He going to blow a gasket <laughs> and stuff. But he was just that excited about the game. And he came in and he said, we're going to kick the Giants' ass. No hum baby. That's what Roger Craig was the manager of the Giants. And he would always talk hum baby. And uh, it, 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 he would put us out there. He was like, we're going to whoop their ass tomorrow. Ain't going to be no hum baby. Ain't going to be nothing. So, we just gonna... <laughs> so just him leading and watching him throw bases and, and, and throwing helmets and stuff. And uh, it was one time where he got pissed. So all of us is on the bench and somebody left a helmet or something. So he went to kick the helmet and bust his ass. So, <laughs> so didn't nobody laugh. So Luke jumped up. He was like, uh, yeah, y'all can laugh because that shit was funny. I'm going to laugh. <laughs> so everybody didn't know what to do or something like that because you know how Luke was. But he really broke the ice for us. And, and, and it, it was just... We used to cut ties on the plane to stop losing streaks and stuff like that. If it didn't say made in Italy, 
If you know what I'm saying, we cut it. If it said made USA, that mean it wasn't real silk. So <laughs> we just did a lot of goofy stuff, man, just to have fun. Analytics. If you're a bona fide baseball lifer, you're probably sick of hearing how this term has infiltrated baseball. The collection of analytical data to create in-game strategy and how it has permeated every facet of the game. But Eric Davis will tell you he has absolutely no problem with analytics, but will passionately convey in a direct manner how analytics doesn't respect the ball players who played in the majors and how those players should have a seat at the table on the direction of America's pastime. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't really have a problem with analytics. I have the problem with a lot of the people that do analytics because analytics has always been in the game and it's, it's always helped. The analytics is not new, but the people in analytics are very disrespectful to the people that have played. They don't join, uh, it's not a lot of camaraderie and it's not because of the players. It's because of the analytic people. And an um, interesting, the word that you picked, E.D., disrespect. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, 100%. And, and, and the people that's listening know what I'm talking about. It's not, it's not it shouldn't be a shout. Uh, because if you, if you feel that, that, that baseball people, we have general conversations about baseball, right? Anybody that played who've been around the game for a long time. And, and, and I don't think you have had, had to play in the major leagues to understand it, but I think you have had to have some connection to major league baseball to understand that. And it's been some great coaches who've never played in the big league. But you can hear their conversation about the major leagues and they coached in the major leagues. But their conversation is going to be, I had conversation with George Brett or, or Mickey Mantle and these were his thoughts. Mm. So you gravitated to that guy because he didn't try to take credit for something somebody else did. But he acknowledged those guys and he said, well, listen, this is how he did it. Why don't you try to do it? So you would become open arms to that. The problem yeah. with analytics is, is, is everybody that's part of analytics, par se, got a degree in college, right? So a A is an A. I don't care what school you went to, right? So the data is the data. So there is no discrepancy. When, when data people are talking about the data because it's about the data. So right, they all right. agree, right? So there is no new data. This data is what you can't deduct. No, the, if you're going by data, it's black and white. But the beauty of baseball is not black and white. It's big, it's tall, it's short, it's fat, it's skinny, it's left-handers, it's right-handers. It's all kind of different variables that make the game what it is. And a but pulse. Take, There's a pulse to the game. All of it. There's symmetry to the game. There's so much to the game that 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 when you just allow the numbers to dictate what happens, you've lost the people that have produced the numbers. Yeah. So yeah. it would be very difficult, or or it's hard for you to 
that tell me a lot about the numbers when I produce the numbers and I know how I produce them. So those are, those are the majority of the rep. They don't want to have a conversation with somebody that can go to college and get a degree and play 20 years in the big leagues. So, so they keep it kind of intact to, for, for them to be able to communicate. Yeah, and if yeah. that's how you want to do it, that's good. But it, it hurts the game because of the conversations that we have now. Or, or if you listen to the World Series and they talk about leadership and, and, and guys who've been around, who've been in certain situations before, when you've eradicated that from, from, from the teaching and learning, how are these guys supposed to learn how to play the game? Amen. 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 You know, uh, Ed. Again, that's another topic that we could truly touch sure. on. Um, sure. You know, but I want to get it light now because there's somebody that I wanted to talk about. Because before we get into this person, I want to talk about the Ed that played the game with such immense talent, speed, passion, swag, especially wearing those men's bands. We're going to talk about that word, too, because I I get so many conversations about that word. I don't think a lot of people know nothing about that word, but go ahead. Well, well, we can educate about swag, but let's talk about the swag of the men's bands that Dusty Baker put front and center in this year's World Series. How did you meet James, our mutual friend? And do you recall that conversation so many years ago when he said, yo, E.D., I got this idea? Well, I knew James because uh, uh, his father worked at Dodger Stadium. Still does, and, right? Still does. And he still works down there. So so the, his father was was a is a guy who who always gravitated to the young brothers because we're all from South Central Los Angeles, James included. And, and and so he used to talk about the bands like when I came to town, because I always I've been wearing wristbands since I was knee high to the curb. Okay. Um, so so he saw how I always, but he would always mention it to him. And then James asked me about it. He showed, he said he wanted to show it to me. So once he showed it to it was a no-brainer for me to get my picture on my wrist. I don't even understand, I, I couldn't fathom saying no to something of that magnitude because I couldn't visualize my face being on a wristband. Yeah. And that and when he was telling me about it, I still couldn't fathom it. I couldn't fathom it. He said, okay, well, I'm going to get something made. Is it cool? I was like, yeah, you can do what you need to do. No problem. Don't worry about me. If you make them, I'll wear them. And when he brought them to me, oh, he got it like that. He was working that <laughs> back. It was slow motion for it. And, and when I saw him, it was like, ouch. Oh, I'm going to kill. <laughs> I'm going to kill. And, and once I got them, I've been wearing them ever since. Even as a coach, because I've seen video uh, coach, footage of you as a coach, you know. Um, Even as a coach, and I went, yeah, it's, but, it's, but, but it they was are, a they... symbol. It was a symbolic symbol from the brothers that 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 James picked some the, the guys that he felt represented what he believed in sure. the most. And, yeah, Barry, and Barry Wardham, uh, and Tony I Wendt felt won, honored yeah. when he explained that to me. I felt honored that he chose me as one of the recipients of somebody that could wear those bands. And I still mm-hmm. do it today. 
Last year, the entire world was struck with the deadly pandemic. And even today, we are seeing a COVID variant become a major concern. But 2021 also witnessed civil unrest that permeated throughout our cities. Even athletes began to become a bit more vocal through their own action on the field and court. But I asked Eric Davis, why does it always seem baseball takes a subtle approach towards hot button topics? If you look at the game of baseball, it's baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet. That's America. Chevrolet is the heartbeat of America. Baseball is America's favorite pastime. All of these things are, 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 are individual things that you don't have to advertise. They feel like you should be a part of you. And baseball has, has adapted that. If you look at this game, they didn't even let Black people play for a long time. So when you saw the, the things that was going on in the game, I think Blacks in this game right now is 8%. We don't have a voice in this game. Uh, you had certain guys like Don, Don is from the city, and he spoke, and he spoke very well, and I followed him. But the, the, the NBA, which is 85 to 90% Black, the NFL is 85, 90% black. Baseball in, in America with blacks is less than 8%. So if you go around, if you talk about the people in the players on the field is 8%. What do you think the, the numbers is off the field? Because we don't have a whole lot of black managers. We don't have a whole lot of black general managers. We don't have a whole lot of black farm directors. Scouting every place where there's leadership in this game, we're lacking. Yeah. So how? So who's going to create that 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 aura behind the movement of blacks in this game to speak out on what was happening? Theo Epstein was the only person that spoke out publicly, and he said, "I'm guilty That's of true. hiring say people that. that look like me. I have mm -hmm. to do better." He's the only one. Why is that? So if you look at what's happening in this game and how it's moving and, and, and why the analytics started to take over, why, why wouldn't it? Because it's not going to benefit us anyway. But we still love the game. Black, still, black kids are still playing this game. Whoever keep asking, why ain't they playing? Why ain't they playing? Why ain't they playing? Why don't y'all ask them, why ain't y'all drafting them? Why aren't the schools good question, giving right? them when you think, scholarships? When you think about it, that's actually a good question. When you think about it, right? Because we see them in the minor leagues and you see them playing. Why, why aren't they? So... So it's more to what meets the eye because of, of the impact that, that black men have in this country and have had in this country for so long. And, and when you don't have that impact, you lose a whole lot of substance in this game. I can remember when the Pirates fielded an all-black lineup. This, uh, this year was 50 years, September 1st, uh, 1971. Ah, man. So, so 
Can you imagine seeing an all-black front office or an all-black manager with an all-black coaching staff? Everybody would ask questions, how do they get to do that? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? How do they get to do that? But you got all-white staffs every day and nobody says a word. So, So as much as we've given to this game, it's disrespectful to allow a, a form in this game to try to eradicate uh, Blacks into the movements of how we can still give back. I've given 30 years to this game, almost 40 years to this game. Yeah. And, and it's a lot of Blacks who have done that. And, and it's not about the Hall of Fame for recognizing our, what we've given to the game. We've given way more and created less it's not about a trophy at yeah. the end of the day. It's about putting some respect on his name and his ability and how he contributed to the success of this game. Because when you go into the uh, the archives of this game, we there. Yeah. We all, we all over it. Yeah. If you look at the home runs, the RBIs, the stolen bases, the, we all over it. Yeah. I, I agree with you there. Right. I agree with you there. But not to you still not giving that respect. So, uh, hopefully somewhere along the line, and I might not be living when it happens, but hopefully we'll get back to a point to where there's some kind of equality in, in, in how we're being judged in the game of baseball. Because the other sports, basketball and football, are far ahead of us yeah. in baseball. Yeah. E.D., I want to switch it up. Uh, something that's quite personal for actually you and I. Uh, in both our lives, it affected both of our lives, and that's uh, cancer. I lost my father in 1990 uh, to colon cancer. He was only 68 years of age. I miss him dearly. And here it is seven years later, you were diagnosed with this dreaded disease. And for our listeners and those that have been affected by cancer, specifically colon cancer, were there any symptoms that made you say, yo, something is wrong? No, not at, at all. It was 97. I was in Baltimore. I had just um, uh, finished in one of my Comeback Player of the Year awards in Cincinnati in 96, and I was killing it. Uh, I, was, I, was late. I was in like 390 in May. Like, American League, they got problems. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm letting it eat. And, and so we go on a – I can reflect on it now, but at the time, I'm not – so we go on a West Coast swing, and I go like one for 25 or something. But I'm not feeling the way that I was feeling before. So we get to Cleveland, and I want to say I hit a double and scored or something on third base, and then I had a small little collision with the catcher. And, and I went and sit down, and we did. So now I'm, I'm getting ready to go back out after the third out and it hit me I couldn't get up and and so I didn't really know what was going on and stuff but I had this immense pain in my side where I couldn't get up so they take me out of the game the doctors come down and they see me Cleveland doctors come down and I played the next day so we go through the game and and man I'm mad and stuff so we Leave there, we go to New York. It was it was Memorial Day weekend. 
and we had a Saturday game. And I'm in New York, either Friday or Saturday, but I'm in, and, and I play the game. I go back to the hotel and it hit me again. And I called the trainer. I said, something's wrong. I can't move. I'm in so much pain that I can't move. So after that, I um, get on the train from New York to Baltimore, where the the ambulance picked me up from the train station. And they took me to the University of Maryland's hospital. And, and I was in the University of Maryland hospital for eight days. They told me I had an abscess, but they couldn't mm. tell the abscess got there. They actually stuck a catheter in my stomach overnight and tried to drain the abscess, which hindsight 2020, thank God, nothing didn't come out. So they, they didn't take nothing, spread it all over my organs. I'm dead. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So each day, I'm trying to figure out, okay, who's going to tell me how did this abscess get there? I'm 34 years old. How did this abscess get in my body where it's causing all this? Nobody could tell me that. So they were actually going to release me to go back to play. And luckily for me, I had a business partner. She worked in D.C. And uh, she said, Eric, you need to check out a that hospital and go to John Hopkins. And I was like, for real? She was like, yeah. So I told Pat Gillick was our general manager. The Hall of Famer got inducted in the Hall of Famer a couple years ago. Um, Pat said, sure, you did where you want to go. I said, I want to go to John Hopkins. So I checked out there on a Wednesday. I go from there at three o'clock to John Hopkins at four o'clock. The first test they did with me, now mind you, I'm in University of Maryland Hospital for eight days. The first test he did was a colonoscopy on me. He said, listen, I'm gonna do a test to rule, start ruling things out. And when he did the colonoscopy, he found out I had the tumor side of a grapefruit. And it was Wednesday. And uh, he said, Doug, we gotta go get this. I said, when? He said, uh, how about Friday? I, I said, Friday is fine. He said, no, Friday is Friday the 13th. I said, Jason is a myth. I don't give a damn about Jason from the movie Friday the 13th. That's a true story. And, and so I said, I just want to wait till my parents come to town when my mom and my wife and them flew into Baltimore. And I had surgery on Friday the 13th. And he took a third of my colon out. And Doug, he said he got all of it. I took 32 uh, weeks of chemotherapy, and I came back to play in September. You know, we they removed a third of your colon. 32 uh, weeks of uh, chemo, but yet yeah. you still come to play. And at the end of the season, you were awarded the prestigious Roberto Clemente Award in 1997. Tell me exactly the feeling of receiving this award, where were you when you heard this news? Who relayed it to you? Give me, paint that picture for me. Well, I, first of all, I didn't even know he had a, honestly, I didn't know he had a, any war, but um, it's a process because it was started with true value uh, and then you worked your way up and, and then you had to win a, or, or get voted from section to section in order to get the ultimate. 
when I heard about it and I was being nominated, I was like, okay, that's cool. See, Roberto, man, we had an award. Okay, but shit, I know what he was going through the whole nine yards. 2-1, that's the house, you know what I'm saying? So interesting. You never even knew Roberto in 97 had an award. You, you no. said, That's what you said, correct? Okay. Yes, yeah. See, you would have to be put in a situation where you understood that uh, this was really going on. And it's normally, now you know it's from comeback, going through stuff, certain attributes have to be a part of you to even be mentioned in something of this magnitude. Um, so no, I, I didn't really know he had an award like this and, and it was as prestigious as he was. But when I, like became the represent because you got to be you got to win a representation from your team first. Yes. Yeah. The team, the team nominee, the team nominee. Right. right. And and so when I became the team nominee, it was like, okay, this is real now. You know what I'm saying? Now this is the lead thing. And when I won it, I was I was uh, I, I I still didn't know how impactful it was until game four of the World Series. Actually, we had lost to Cleveland in the playoffs uh, because they beat us uh, in six games. The Armantine Benitez, who ended up pitching for the uh, Mets, blew three saves in that series. And uh, Cleveland beat it. Marquise Grissom made a three-run homer in game two. So it was, uh, it was crazy. So I I'm in Cleveland. Uh, finding out I got to go to Cleveland to receive the award. It's cold as hell. You know what I'm saying? I'm jazzy. I got my dive on and my trench, you know, flies out all outside because, you know, that's what I do. You know what I'm saying? And when I got the award and, and I took it and then we talked to the press and I felt it. I was like, oh, shit, this is a real, <laughs> it's a real, <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, please, 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 E.D., you didn't tell me you said, oh, shit, with Mrs. Clemente there, right? You didn't say that, No, right? no, 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 no. This is when I was just trying to pick it up. I was saying, oh, shit. Man, this is huge. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, now, did you meet her, E? Did you meet Did you meet her? Did you meet her yes. kids? Okay. Yes. What was that yes. feeling like? What was that feeling like meeting her? Well, I had met her before. Okay. Um, because in in the 83, we went to Puerto Rico. You remember they used to have a Roberto Clemente Classic? Yes. And we went down there in spring training and played two games. We played two games with the Braves down there. So I was kind of familiar with the family and Junior and all them. Okay. Uh, so it was great to see him again under them circumstances. Uh, I was a rookie to 83. I didn't even get gotten the big leagues yet. And to see them, then it just brought it all back. Like, this is real. And this is a really, really, really prestigious honor. <clears throat> And, and it didn't really hit me until afterwards and I started really looking at it when I got back home and then people started calling me to congratulate me and, and man, you, dude, do you really know what that means? And I was like, yeah, I think I do, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm going to figure it out, you know what I'm saying? If I ain't going to do that, I'm going to figure it out. But it became the most fruitful reward I've ever won in my life. Wow. Wow, wow. Um, so so literally so literally hands-on world series yeah. ring yeah. all-star game gold yeah. gloves this is number one this is the top yeah wow. because this uh infuses all of that uh 
because of the man. And, and I don't know if there's an award out there that has it as much significance about the man. Even when you look at the Cy Young, you don't talk about Cy Young, the man. Uh, they just started with the MVP getting the Henry Aaron Award and Sir Willie Major. They just started these a few years ago. So the impact of Roberto has been there since, what, 70? 73. 73. Yeah. So that's, man, that's over 40-some-odd years of an impact of just not just the man, but the humanitarian side of him. Then how how he passed going to Nicaragua to help and to feed. So it's just so much behind that. And, and what else is there that could exemplify from one player to another more than Roberto Clemente? Now, interesting you're saying from one player to another, ED. One player, Dave Parker, who shared a story, I believe, with you on when he met Roberto and he was your teammate. Can you share for our listeners, what did Dave, Dave talk about Roberto? Dave told me he was probably the, the most complete player that he's ever seen. And that he was, he was a better gentleman than he was a player. Mm. And, and you talk about 3000 hits and, and you're talking about representing a country. I don't think anybody represents a country like Roberto represents Puerto Rico. Yeah, it's a good point. You know what I mean? It's a good point. I, it, Mays and Aaron and America and stuff, they don't really view them. We do. Yes. But Puerto Rico, 2-1? Man, they'll cut your head off. <laughs> what? That's, yeah. that's, there is nothing bigger than that. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, the, yeah. and it's great that that his country uh, still holds that, and 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 that's a credit credit to the Puerto Rican people that his country holds that uh, for all these years and will continue to do that from time on. And interesting, not only just Puerto Rico, Ed, the city of Pittsburgh, throughout oh, the United throughout the United States and globally. Globally, Roberto Clemente. You know, uh, like Clemente, Ed, you're working in the minor leagues with the uh, Reds organization, and I'm sure, Ed, I'm sure, not only winning the Roberto Clemente Award, but there is a little bit of Clemente and Ed with showing these guys how to play the game the right way. So, Ed's philosophy. If I'm there, what am I hearing from Ed, the coach? Oh, there's a lot of to sum it up, to sum it up, what 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 well, can you first say? First of all, I'm not a coach, um, and I'm explaining to you why. A coach is someone who manages talent. I'm a teacher. I teach mm -hmm. you how to manage your own talent, and that's very important because coaches wants to be remembered. Teachers want to be revered, mm. and. And if you think about all the teachers in your life, they gave you something to move forward with. Coaches like give you something that they can stick around with. So I try to give them something that they can take with them 
Uh, and it's different from player to player uh, because every player don't need everything that I have to offer because everything that I have to offer, I got from so many different people. Yeah. Uh, so I try to tailor it to the, the individual based on what I see he needs at that moment. And the, and the first thing is be true to yourself. You have to understand what you need to work on and be truthful at it. Because if you're not truthful at what you need to improve on, how can you improve? So that's the first thing. The second thing is don't be afraid to fail. And the third thing is never be afraid to look in the mirror and critique yourself. And in baseball, seven out of 10 times, you You're do going fail. To fail. Nobody, I didn't care about the media because no one could critique me more than I could critique myself. So I never got mad at the media for saying I sucked. I probably did. I probably was over 12. I probably did. So I treated myself worse or I was harder on myself more than anybody could write anything about me. So look in that mirror and be honest with yourself. You know, uh, I love to hear your thoughts, E.D. Uh, specifically, there's a movement and it's a movement that's been really ongoing. It really began around 2006 in Pittsburgh during mm -hmm. the All-Star Game. Mm -hmm. And that's the movement of retiring Roberto's number throughout Major League Baseball. And you as a recipient of the award, you know a little bit of Clemente's life, the impact, the legacy, your thoughts on why Roberto's number should or should not be retired. Uh, I think it should be retired. Uh, if you mix all the things that I've talked about, if you mix the person, the humanitarian side with the athlete, uh, the graciousness, the ambassador, the, the, the leader, um, the listener, the, the commentary, the, the dignitarial side of how he lived his life, why what 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 does someone have to do in order to get it retired yeah um i don't think uh 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 that 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 the things that he did didn't warrant it uh it's just a matter of them opening up those floodgates to a lot of other blacks uh who would be up for that and i don't think mlb would want to uh, start to do that because now you start to have to open up a, a whole lot of floodgates for other ones. Not to say that that would be a bad thing, but it, if you do for one, you would have to start opening up those things because there's a, so many great players in this game that have done so many great things. But Roberto stands alone to me in the humanitarian side. And not to say that Mays didn't do it or Henry didn't do it or, 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 Babe Ruth didn't do it or, or Ted Williams didn't do it. Just on the level that he did it and, and without any blink of an eye to help his fellow man, if he don't get it, then won't nobody get it. And I have to tell you on those words, you said it, the humanitarian. We could honestly say, E.D., that there will never be a professional athlete that will travel on a plane, in a car, on a bus, on New Year's Eve, on a humanitarian effort 
relief supplies, whatever you want to say from the standpoint of giving to the less fortunate, that's just not going to happen on New Year's Eve. But that man did it almost 50 years ago. And E.D., Eric the Red, Eric Davis, the 1997 Roberto Clemente Award winner. It has been my honor to have you on the Talking 21 podcast. And I certainly hope this is not the first time or the last time, but a number of times moving forward that we will have you as a guest. Just by you saying that, man, I appreciate you because that just sends chills down my shoulders, man. And, and, and when I honestly say that, that, that this award uh, means the world to me because you try to, and I was raised to try to help the fellow man and I do what I can and we all do certain things, but how you so eloquently spoke about two, one, at the time he did it, how he did it, why he did it. Um, there is no other. And, and I, I don't like to say never, uh, but there'll never be another first um, because he's what you call an OG, he's the original. And, Absolutely, and I like that, I like that. Hopefully somebody will embody what he exemplified and somebody will continue or pick up that torch and do it in a level that he did it. But it's so many people out here. Let me just say this, man. It's a lot of people who donate and it's a lot of charitable people out here. Uh, and it's not to diminish anything that that I've done or, he, or, or whoever's listening to this podcast. But on his level, at that time, for that to be the cause and him to step up and do it, that's why he the OG. No fanfare, brother, no fanfare. And, and that's why that award is no fanfare for me. It's gonna stay in my presence. And, and I kind of educate my, my girls and my grandbabies and them to, to understand what that, I, 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 yeah, you can sell the gold gloves and all that stuff if I leave, but that one right there, no, nah, that ain't going nowhere. Y'all better hold on to that or I'm coming back. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm going to haunt somebody if y'all sell that one. Thanks so much, Eric, for joining us on another podcast, which ironically, as we are nearing the completion of another season, your episode was the 21st drop. And I'm sure our listeners will agree with your assessment. Proelto was incredibly exceptional, gifted, and authentic. And as you stated, he truly was an OG. And I know that award will forever have a special place in the Davis household. May Roberto rest in peace. Que descanse en paz. But before we wrap, if you enjoyed our podcast, and I'm sure you did, Three words, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and on Instagram, Talking 21 Podcasts. And yes, we're also on Facebook and YouTube. And a special thank you is in order to our executive producer, Ras Guevara, and to our social media manager, Senor Beso. This is your host, Danny Torres, and be sure to follow me on Twitter at DannyT21. Tune in next time for our continued conversation about the great one. Happy New Year 
Feliz Año Nuevo.